City Cinema, a Gila Films podcast. I'm David Weaver, and a really great weekend for The Last Frankenstein. So we have the movie streaming on eight different platforms currently, and one of them was a channel on YouTube that had licensed the film, and they had decided to uh, unlist it just because it wasn't because it's not a video that can be uh, listed on Amazon as for I mean sorry on YouTube as for children. Uh, that affects their ability to monetize the movie long term and on a, on a bigger scale and monetize their channel. So they had it up there for about a month, got like 2,500 views. We made a, we made a little bit of change off that, but uh, they decided to uh, no longer host it there. And I understand that. They have a, to uh, look at their uh, the bigger picture of all the content they have on there and how they're best going to uh, profit from that. And so I was thinking, well, I could wait. I could wait till someone else licenses it to a different YouTube channel. I'm sure that would happen eventually. But I'm like, why don't I just put it on my YouTube channel for the Gila films? I had held off on that because I couldn't monetize it that way myself. In order to uh, sign up to uh, have a monetized YouTube channel, you have to have uh, at least a 1,000 uh, subscribers. And needless to say, uh, that was not the case with my channel. I've been hanging at around 30, 31 for some time now. But it was important just to have eyes on it eyes on the film um you know the money is whatever money you can get from it is nice but it's just more important to have it available uh on a site that's so readily available across the the world and you know i thought maybe we'll get some um get some more subscribers uh via via this anyways maybe this will help us out in the long term so uploaded it friday morning and it's a done incredible uh as far as i'm concerned there might be people i mean i i haven't really dug into like what you should expect in terms of views and likes within a certain time frame to really kind of see how this compares but i know i'm very satisfied how it's doing uh i have it up right now the um the analytics for it that i can view and like i said friday morning so what is that friday saturday sunday monday so we're at like going on 96 hours and we're at almost 70,000 views, which is incredible. So that's, what what is that? Like a ridiculous, I, I can't even do the math in my head, how many, how much more of a percentage that is in terms of views via when it was on the prior YouTube channel. Um, and people seem to like it because uh, the like versus dislike percentage right now is at over 92%. So that means if the people who watched the movie and took the time to either give, give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down, 92.4% is where we're hanging right now. Those people gave it a thumbs up, which is just phenomenal. We really, I mean, just incredibly appreciate that that support. And in terms of subscribers to the Gila Films channel, like I said, we were at like 30 or 31 for like, I don't know, a year. It was a really long time. We were just hanging at that number. We're now over 500 subscribers, uh, 514 at, at the second. So I just want to say thank you to everyone who's been watching it, been giving it a thumbs up. Uh, I know a lot of people have been sharing the link um, on Facebook. Um, and just really, really appreciate that. We really appreciate the engagement and bringing awareness to the film. This will help the channel out, which long-term, you know, obviously monetizing this channel, will that money goes right back into what we're, we're doing here at Hilo Films with getting ready to make the sequel um, and restoring UFO Target Earth, our other project. And um, it, just the awareness will help with that too. So anything you can do to keep that up, just keep spreading the, 
the good news, it's free. And since it's not monetized yet, there's no ads. So enjoy that. And I'd, I'd like to, uh, at some point, upload a 4K upscale because I did that for the trailer. And it looks really nice. The problem, of course, is that just creating that file will tie up my computer for like three days straight. So I have to kind of uh, hold off on that for now. But uh, yeah, definitely want to get a 4K upscale up there at some point. So thank you very much, everybody. And keep up the great work. I think one of the big pieces of news in the film uh, just happened a few hours ago, and that's news broke that Paul Rubens, Pee Wee Herman, passed away, age 70, had a six-year bout with cancer that he had kept private. And, uh, of course, a uh, legend for uh, not just starring as Pee Wee Herman, but he created that whole franchise, the Pee Wee's Playhouse TV show back in the 80s that ran for five seasons, I believe, and, of course, the feature films, and more recently the uh, Netflix film, and just this landmark cultural icon that he was responsible for. Um, but not just that. He, uh, of course, had other performances that uh, he's known for over the years, playing uh, Penguin's father in Batman Returns, which reunited him with director Tim Burton, who had directed the first Pee-wee film, uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, which was actually Burton's feature directorial debut. And he and Burton also uh, got together again for The Nightmare Before Christmas, uh, where Rubens voiced uh, the character of Locke. He would also appear in such films as Mystery Men, the Buffy the Vampire Slayer film, the original with Christy Swanson, a Blow with Johnny Depp. Um, and even before, really, Pee-wee uh, took, took everyone by storm, he was showing up in movies like uh, Pandemonium and the Blues Brothers and smaller parts. But again, incredible career. Uh, 17 daytime Emmy nominations he received for, for Pee-wee and won, won twice. And uh, also received three primetime Emmy nominations, uh, one of them for uh, a recurring role on Murphy Brown. And I can't forget from my own childhood, another one near and dear, Flight of the Navigator, in which he uh, voiced the, uh, the ship, spaceship, basically, the, the character of Max, which piloted the spaceship in that film, um, which was directed by Randall Kleiser, who also directed the second Pee-wee film, Pee-wee's uh, Big Top Pee-wee. So RIP to Paul Rubens. Also heard today that uh, Betty Ann Bruno passed away, age 93. And who was that, you may ask? Well, she was a child actress, did a couple of bit parts back in the 30s. She had a small role in John Ford's The Hurricane, the Academy Award-nominated uh, classic with uh, Dorothy L'Amour. But uh, more notably is that she was one of the munchkins in The Wizard of Oz. There's about a dozen children who were cast as munchkins in The Wizard of Oz who are average height kind of, I think, more in the background and everyone else. though it's like a hundred plus of the little people who played in that, uh, played in those roles. And all of those little people have passed on. Jerry Marin, who was kind of looked at as the face of the little people cast members. He was the last one of them to to die. But uh, Bruno was one of, like I said, uh, about a dozen children um, who show up in the movie. Uh, you can go to her website, uh, bettyandbruno.com, and there's a lot of information there uh, about her work in The Wizard of Oz and what she did afterwards, and she eventually wrote an autobiography. But she uh, went on to a very successful career in the San Francisco Bay Area, just involved mostly as a reporter, a TV reporter, but also did some producing, TV producing, and on-air hosting, and even won uh, three, news and, uh, three news Emmys, uh, regional news Emmys. I think there's still a couple left of the other children who were, you know, the average height children who were in the movie. I think a couple of them might still be alive. I don't think she was the last one. Um, but definitely there there can't be many left um, after her. But yeah, just to, just actually read about that just within the last half hour. 
We also lost actress Inga Swenson, age 90, who was a Tony nominee for stage work, but probably most people remember her for her role uh, on television as German cook Gretchen Krauss on the sitcom Benson. Um, that was a performance which earned her uh, three Emmy nominations. Uh, she also appeared in such films as Advising Consent, Lipstick, The Betsy, but probably her best-known feature film role was The Miracle Worker, in which she played Helen Keller's mother. So R.I.P. to Inga Swenson, age 90. We also lost screenwriter Julian Barry, age 92. Uh, Barry wrote the play Lenny. Uh, the, bio, the biographical play of controversial stand-up comic Lenny Bruce. And that was a later turned into a film with Dustin Hoffman uh, earning an Academy Award nomination for playing playing the role of Lenny Bruce. And Barry wrote the screenplay for that film as well, and that earned him a Best Script uh, Oscar nomination. Uh, did a couple other films over the years. He wrote the screenplay to Rhinoceros, which was a film that reteamed Gene Wilder and Zero Mostel after uh, their success in The Producers. Um, and he also scripted the Mel Gibson movie, the river also lost actress Lilia Goldoni, who is probably her best known role was she was the female lead in John Cassavetti's directorial debut Shadows, the classic film Shadows, and also had key roles in such movies as Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, uh, Philip Kaufman's remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, uh, the original version of The Italian Job, The Day of the Locust. Uh, genre fans might know her aside from Body Snatchers from her work in Hammer Films Hysteria as well as uh, Theater of Death and The Unseen, which is that horror movie that stars uh, Barbara Bach. But yes, uh, she actually earned a pair of BAFTA nominations throughout the course of her career, that being kind of the British equivalent to the Academy Award, one uh, for her lead performance in uh, Shadows uh, as Most Promising Newcomer, and then the other Best Supporting Actress for Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. But yeah, Lilia Goldoni, uh, age 86. Also leaving us was writer Jerome Coopersmith, age 97. Now, he kind of ties into my background a little bit, a couple of different ways. One is that he was a mentee of a legendary author, Horton Foote, who my father is a huge fan of. Um, and it just I kind of went through over the years uh, for Christmas and birthday buying different films and TV specials that Horton Foote had written. Foote, of course, is a famous playwright, but also an Academy Award-winning screenwriter. He had won the Oscars for writing the scripts for To Kill a Mockingbird and later Tender Mercies. And um, many of his works have been adapted into films, probably The Trip to Bountiful, which he also wrote the screenplay for, is one of his most famous. But uh, yeah, he was mentor to Jerome Coopersmith. And Coopersmith uh, was a uh, Tony-nominated playwright. He wrote the uh, Sherlock Holmes musical Baker Street, which was uh, met with success. Also co-created the short-lived uh, newspaper drama uh, The Andros Targets. But kind of a little more personal to me, also besides his Horton Foot connection, is that he... Uh, wrote the two holiday cl uh, perennial favorites. One is the uh, late 70s TV movie An American Christmas Carol, which uh, starred Henry Winkler as a Ebenezer Scrooge-like character. I believe his name was Benedict Slade. And it updated the um, Christmas Carol story, Dickens' story, to the Great Depression. And that was a TV movie I watched growing up with my family, and uh, you know they still check it out. My sister's a big fan of it. And the other one he wrote uh, was one of the Rankin-Bass specials, uh, Twas the Night Before Christmas. Not quite up there with Frosty and Rudolph, but still an enjoyable uh, an enjoyable uh, entry in their resume. Also wrote another uh, lesser-known but still well-regarded uh, Christmas special from 1977 called Have I Got a Christmas for You. So Jerome, Jerome Coopersmith, who also was a veteran of the Battle of the Bulge, a wounded veteran of the Battle of the Bulge, yeah, passed away age 97. 
And uh, continuing on the trend of uh, screenwriters who uh, departed us was uh, two-time Oscar winner Bo Goldman. Now, Goldman, he won Best Screenplay Oscars for One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest and then later for Melvin and Howard, a Jonathan Demme film about uh, a truck driver who uh, supposedly uh, alleged that he had an encounter with uh, Howard Hughes, which led to a uh, discovery of a supposed will that Hughes, in which Hughes left this uh, man a lot of money. Goldman was also later nominated for Son of a Woman, uh, the film that finally got Al Pacino his Oscar, in which uh, Goldman wrote. And he also uh, wrote such scripts as uh, Meet Joe Black, the uh, Brad Pitt remake of Death Takes a Holiday, and uh, the Bette Midler film The Rose, and another Pacino flick, City Hall. Uh, but he's, uh, he's actually, was the fa- I didn't realize this, he's the father-in-law of Todd Field, uh, the uh, many times Academy Award-nominated filmmaker who just is coming off the success of his uh, Kate Blanchett movie, Tar. But uh, yeah, Goldsmith, he was uh, 90 years old uh, when he left us just recently. We also lost actress Josephine Chaplin, age 74, and as that last name might imply, she was one of Charles Chaplin, the legendary, silent, and actually later on the sound, uh, comic filmmakers, one of his 11 children. She's actually kind of right in the middle. She was number six. And uh, she was uh, a result of his uh, final marriage to uh, Eugene O'Neill's daughter, Una. And uh, she, she appeared in small parts in a couple of her dad's films. She was in Limelight in his last uh, directorial effort, A Countess from Hong Kong, but did go on to actually some bigger roles, uh, some lead roles. She was in uh, Pasolini's The Canterbury Tales. Uh, she showed up in the 1976 Jess Franco film Jack the Ripper with Klaus Kinski. Uh, she was also in... The Bay Boy, the Canadian film, and she starred opposite Lawrence Harvey in Escape to the Sun. And uh, yeah, 74 years old, and she still has seven of her siblings surviving her, probably the best known of which is uh, Geraldine Chaplin, the actress Geraldine Chaplin from Dr. Zhivago. Another actress who uh, also just passed away around the same time was uh, Juliette Mania. And uh, she starred in several uh, films by the uh, renowned French filmmaker Claude Chabrol. Uh, she was in Les Cousins. Uh, she appeared in Bluebeard and also in Ophelia. But other films uh, that you might better know her for if you're a genre fan was she was in uh, the famous French horror film Eyes Without a Face, uh, which some people might know from its rather misleading uh, pulpish American title, uh, The Horror Chamber of Dr. Faustus. And fans of Giallo will know her from a supporting role in Antonio Bido's The Bloodstained Shadow. And she was 87 years old when she passed on. And we would be in ill behavior if we did not mention the passing of two renowned legendary singers who just left us. One being Sinead O'Connor, who I don't know that she ever really had an, I don't believe she ever had any kind of acting roles. I mean, other than just, you know, appearing on like a Saturday Night Live or something like that, but still. Nothing Compares to You is a uh, iconic music video, aside from just the fact that it's an incredible uh, bit of singing that she did. And she, of course, had a lot of struggles in her life, wrestling with mental health issues and kind of different reactions to her uh, career. And sadly, of course, she was only 56 when she passed away. But uh, no denying that she's left behind this very incredible discography of her work. And just, I mean, just Nothing Compares to You alone is just... More, more than uh, most singers can hope for, just to have something that's so emblematic of that time period in music. And of course, Tony Bennett would be the other one. Uh, Bennett did, did take a couple uh, passes at acting, uh, one of which is The Oscar, which is the mid-60s film starring Stephen Boyd as uh, an actor who will do anything to climb the, rung, uh, to climb the rungs of success and win the, uh, the titular award. And uh, Tony Bennett is kind of the, 
the friend, the tech, the buddy of his who gets uh, mistreated by him along the way, uh, not generally by by critics looked at as a, a great performance on Ben's part, but the film as a whole has finally been kind of undergone a, a reappreciation over the years. At the time, just kind of I think was looked at as kind of like this misfire, but now it's kind of gone to become a cult classic and just the incredible. Uh, barrage of stars who appear in that film, some playing themselves, some playing actual characters of the film. I mean, it's insane. It's got like Ernest Borgnine and Frank Sinatra and Bob Hope, you know, Milton Berle, Walter Brennan, Roger Crawford. Uh, who else is there? Elka Summer, uh, Eleanor Parker. So just a, a whole parade of them throughout that movie. I really love that film. I enjoy it. I haven't seen it. It wasn't really readily available. I, so when I watched it, I had to tape it off Turner Classic back in the day and it was just, you know, not even in a, in its original aspect ratio, but finally Kino Lover came around and released a Blu-ray of it, so I haven't watched that since I picked it up, but it might be time now, especially since the girlfriend's never seen it. But then his other kind of acting role, better received at the time, was actually playing himself, but not just as a cameo, in a really substantive uh, part in the uh, late 70s acclaimed uh, miniseries King, about Martin Luther King Jr., uh, starring Paul Winfield in that that title role. But again, you know, Bennett, what, what can you say? I mean, it's just incredible. This guy was singing into his nineties, uh, singing while battling, uh, Alzheimer's, but, uh, still able to do these concerts and release these albums, uh, considered the master of the duet, uh, civil rights activist, a winner of 20 Emmys could go on and on and on. I mean, he's just one of those, uh, just landmark icons of, of our era, just the longevity, not just the longevity of his career, but the successful longevity of his career and a career that really went through some rough times. I mean, he had this, this point, I think it was like the uh, late, kind of in the seventies going into the early eighties where, you know, his wife was leaving him. He was dealing with cocaine addiction. He had tried his own record label and the albums that had come out, even though they were well, well reviewed, they didn't do well financially. Uh, he was in major debt, like seven figure debt to the IRS. Um, but then was just able, with the help of his sons, actually, uh, just able to turn everything around and become the kind of the person we've known him as for these past, uh, you know, 40, 35, 40 years. It's kind of renaissance, man. Nothing wrong with um, living to 96 years old. And, of course, I left my heart in San Francisco, one of his classic, classic tunes. But just really, yeah, I think just think that the endurance he had and just... Of course, you think about that in connotation. I mean, sorry, in connection with his his Alzheimer's diagnosis, but um, just just the perse- perseverance he showed throughout all these phases of his life, uh, right up to the end. So, just uh, a man who definitely paid his dues. So, tip of the hat to him. And if you haven't watched the Oscar, check it out. You will not. Even if you don't like it, you're not going to be bored. Um, but it's definitely a really enjoyable film. Also in the news, of course, is the strike situation with the actors and writers, uh, unionized actors and writers being on strike in the uh, film and television industry. That's a really pivotal moment for uh, these people because this is really the time to kind of have a reckoning with the uh, financial impact of streaming and AI. I mean, it's never, never going to be easy to kind of duke this out to negotiate this with the studios, what needs to be done there. You know, I don't think if they wait a year or two years that it's going to be any better. It's not like the studios are ever going to want to have this discussion. So it might as well be done now. Um, of course you have some of these CEOs saying this is a horrible time. We're just coming out of the pandemic and 
all this. But yeah, I mean, obviously these CEOs are still pulling major, major salaries. And, you know, despite the fact that high profile actors and writers and filmmakers make, can make huge money, uh, the majority of them do not, uh, you know, like, like with any industry, if you just look at the people at the top, the CEO of, of, uh, big business, the, uh, much respected hedge fund managers, the, uh, the top level politicians, the elite athletes, the, the big movie stars, music stars if you look at those people you can kind of get this um misunderstanding that everyone's making that kind of money and it's just not the truth it's like an iceberg it's just that you're just seeing the very top and the vast majority like overwhelming majority of people in these industries are uh, either at like some kind of just getting by level or even less than that especially the arts where it can be difficult to find consistent work that's why it's just you know, important for them to kind of nail down the residual situation, which they have done with television in the past, but now with streaming because that's becoming such a dominant force. And of course, AI going forward, um, might as well get that taken care of too. So hopefully it won't last long for really for the performers and the writers' sakes because they're the ones who are hurt most by going on the strike. Um, so for their sakes, I hope it doesn't take too long, but definitely, you know, anything you can do to, I mean, just not like a lot you can do. I'm perhaps on one level to support. It's not like, you know, I can go to a movie studio and give my peace of mind. I mean, I'm sure you could do things in terms of just sending emails and letters, but I think one of the biggest things you can do to support in a case like this is just the, the awareness of what's at stake. Um, many people listening to this podcast might not even know anyone necessarily connected to the industry. I do, you know, my cousin Keely is an actress who's in the last Frankenstein, her, uh, husband Jorge in The Last Frankenstein is an actor, and he is, you know, in SAG. So this is uh, something that really definitely affects them. And like I said, it's something that really needs to be addressed. It needs to be addressed, you know, even beforehand, just like when when you could see streaming coming on the horizon, it was like, yeah, that's going to be a problem if, if all the if the mathematics of everything regarding residuals is built around like broadcasting and physical media, you know, streaming's got to be ta- dealt with. So hoping that this will resolve itself soon for their sakes, but uh, definitely just, you know, be aware, and, you know, be supportive and be understanding of uh, what's going on and what they're really fighting for, which is kind of like the future, really, because I mean, streaming is just going to become more and more dominant. I don't, I'm not one of these people who thinks that theatrical is ever going to totally go away or physical media is ever going to totally go away. But streaming will take a bigger and bigger chunk out. And uh, likewise, AI is going to have big repercussions. So, yeah, just to be aware, be supportive, do what you can do. Uh, in terms of new releases that were announced, not a ton I just wanted to touch on. A lot of 4K upgrades from Blu-ray releases. Scream Factory just announced that Pumpkinhead, Night of the Demons, uh, they're both going to get 4K upgrades uh, around Halloween. The Blob as well, the 80s version of The Blob. Arrow Video is going to be doing 4K upgrades of the Hellraiser, they, they did Blu-ray releases of the first three Hellraiser movies. They're going to be upgrading those to 4K, but also including the fourth film and the 4K box set. So that's pretty cool. Uh, and they also announced they're doing Witness, the Harrison Ford film, uh, bringing that to 4K. So pretty excited about that, as well as The Desperate Hours, uh, one of Humphrey Bogart's final films. They're going to be bringing that to Blu-ray, which is an incredible film. Very tough, very gritty, very, very muscular. I don't want to oversell it. It's like, oh, it's so brutal. But, you know, it's a very, it's a very, tough film, uh, which uh, Bogart is one of three escaped convicts, and one of the other three is his younger brother, who take this family hostage, this suburban uh, you know, middle-class family headed up by Frederick March. And it was based on a play, uh, and I think which was eventually turned into a novel, kind of rather infamously re- remade in like 1990 with Mickey Rourke and Anthony Hopkins. But the original version, uh, directed by the great William Wyler, 
It's a terrific film. It's one of my favorite Bogart movies. And the great thing about it, you know, that came out in 55. I believe Bogart died in 56 or 57. I know his last movie came out in 56, but he may have passed in 57. But just, he's one of those actors that once he became established as a star, it's not that he never had a misfire in in the ensuing time uh, of his career until he died. But really overall, you look at the overall trajectory of his career, it's just constantly maintaining quality, constantly right to the end, just turning out these really great films these and delivering incredible performances. I mean, it's a, it's a great performance uh, for Booker. He's not not playing the tip, the, the kind of like more like Sam Spade uh, or, or Rick character who's just so tough on the outside, has this uh, unbreakable shell, uh, this veneer of almost like uh, uh, play, it, play things off uh, coolly. It's a, it's a different characterization for him, kind of like a pulls from that in terms of the, the toughness of those uh, characters, but also kind of works in some of the frailty that you saw in kind of like his performance as uh, Captain Queek in the K-Mutiny. So definitely a film I highly recommend. Great cast all around, too. It's got Arthur Kennedy and Martha Scott, a Gig Young. So uh, The Desperate Hours coming out from Arrow Video. And that brings us to the movie of the week, which was uh, another first-time watch for me. Quite an interesting film, quite a good film uh, from 1982, Samuel Fuller's White Dog. And this is a film that barely had any kind of release initially when it came out. It was met with a lot of undue controversy, which we'll get into. But the premise of the film is it stars uh, Christy McNichol as an actress, and she's uh, driving home at night and hits a white German shepherd, takes it to a nearby vet clinic, gets it patched up, takes it home uh, while there's you know, while she's has notified the local pound and put out posters in the hopes that maybe the owner can be found, she takes it into her house and finds out through a series of events that this isn't just any dog. It's a, it's a dog that's been trained to be an attack dog. Uh, she believes it's been trained to be like the police-style attack dogs. Um, initially, she she starts to realize this when it comes to her defense, when someone breaks into her house, and then... Uh, after that, the dog carries out another attack on someone closer to her. And her boyfriend, a screenwriter, played by Jameson Parker, pre-Simon and Simon, he's of the opinion that, you know, this, this dog's just dangerous. It could create a liability issue for you. You just need to take it to the pound and have it put down. And she's totally against that. You know, she feels that, you know, this dog was trained to behave like this, and so it should be untrained. It's not the dog's fault. If anyone's fault, it's the fault of the, the people that trained this dog to be like this. So she, uh, you know, being in the Hollywood setting, being an actress, being out in L.A., she goes to this uh, place where they train animals for the films and television. And it's a place run over uh, by, uh, in part, by Burl Ives, the wonderful Burl Ives, which is great casting that he's in this. And she approaches him and tells him, you know, I have an attack dog. I just, I want to untrain it. And he tells her, there's no way. You can't. There's no way to uh, untrain an attack dog. It will always have that in its DNA, even if it's peaceful for years to come. It could just turn on you at any any time. And so he's not willing to, to take this on. And as he's escorting her to, uh, to leave, she has the dog with her. The dog breaks free from her and attacks one of the employees at this, at this pet training place, animal training place. Attacks this person on site, and he's a black person. And that's when the realization comes which Bro Lives, you know, very emphatically points out, this is a white dog. This is this isn't like a police dog that was just a you know trained to attack criminals. This is a dog that was trained by someone to attack black people. As he's pointing this out to her, along comes his business partner in this in this training uh, facility, 
and it's Paul Winfield playing, a, obviously, a black man uh, who is unlike Brill Ives, who feels like oh, there's there's no hope for this animal. You just got to kill it, got to put it down. Paul Winfield walks into this situation, and he's determined to train the dog. He's determined to re-educate it and break it of its of its racist instincts because he feels that that's where there's hope that if a way can be found to retrain these these animals these dogs that have been taught to kill and attack black people on sight then that will kind of remove the incentive for even creating these animals in the first place and so he says give me five weeks and i'm going to try to retrain this dog and if it doesn't work out i'll kill it at the end and you can tell from the conversation he has with Berlives that he's tried this before. This is not just like an idea that just came into his head. This is something he's wanted to do for a time. And Christy McNichols' character, of course, is supportive of the idea because she loves the dog. And I don't, I'm not going to really go any more into the plot than that. I don't want to obviously get into spoilers and such, but the whole film serves as an allegory about, of course, racism. Is it something inside people that they can be re-educated? Or is it just something that once it's there, it's there always? And I, I will say that there's a conversation that comes up between McNichol and Winfield at one point because she asked him, has anybody ever tried to do this before? And he talks about how, yeah, there's been some people who have been really well-intentioned who've tried this, tried to retrain these animals, these dogs. And they always kind of back off at the last moment because you get to this point sometimes where this animal has been trained to kill people on sight based on their skin color and that's how it's developed and grown. And you're trying to retrain it completely. And the animal can just sometimes reach this breaking point where it's just this like cacophony of all these different instincts and training. And the dog, it could just snap and just attack anybody, anything. Just He describes it as like becoming a homicidal maniac. The film, to kind of go back into its production history, it, it originates from what was initially a story expanded into a novel by an author named Romain Gary. This story attracted the attention of uh, Paramount Pictures, who wanted had been trying to make this into a movie like at least since like the mid seventies. They had like Roman Polanski attached to it at one time, uh, Tony Scott, um, which I think if he had if they had followed through on him, that probably would have been his first movie because The Hunger ended up being his first movie. I think that came out like eighty. Um, Arthur Penn, director of Bonnie and Clyde, and Little Big Man was another one they looked at. And much in keeping with what's going on in the film industry right now, they found themselves in a situation where at Paramount where they had these uh, strikes coming up with the uh, Directors Guild and the Writers Guild, and they just really wanted to fast-track this this movie. And so they were going to attach Robert Butler to direct it. And Butler, he had done feature films before, probably best known for his stuff over at Disney. He did some of the, like some stuff with Kurt Russell, but had also been very active in television. He directed the acclaimed William Holden uh, cop movie, The Blue Knight, for television, and had gotten an Emmy nomination for that. And so they were going to have him direct it. And John Davison, producer John Davison, was assigned to the film. And they kind of looked at it. The studio's like, looking at this, like, let's get this just low budget, turn it out, kind of a little bit more of like an exploitation film. But uh, it was Davison who suggested, why don't, we, why don't we bring in Samuel Fuller to direct this movie? Now, Samuel Fuller is a legendary auteur filmmaker who, you know, had written scripts earlier in his career and then moved on to directing had done such acclaimed films as Pick Up on South Street, um, Shock Corridor, The Naked Kiss. He was a very progressive filmmaker and artist, often involved in writing his films. And at this time, he was coming off of having directed The Big Red One, his World War II film with Lee Marvin. 
And we kind of talked about Samuel Fuller a few episodes back with the Deadly Trackers, how he was the original director on that and how that film went through a whole bunch of troublesome productions issues. And that was kind of what happened in the 70s a lot with Fuller at that stage in his career. You know, the Deadly Trackers ended up falling apart. Another movie, The Klansman, which we had talked about in that episode, fell apart. And The Big Red One had been his first directorial effort in some time. Um, Unfortunately, it was rather cut down from his original version uh, that he had uh, his original director's cut. Uh, and not restored to that more richer length um, until after he uh, uh, passed away. But he was coming off that film, and of course, he was very progressive, like I said, and he was very outspoken against racism. But at the same time, he was also a director who was used to working on these tight schedules and lower budgets. So Davison saw in him kind of like this, this perfect... Uh, perfect combination of what they wanted. Someone who could turn this into something more than just an exploitation film, but who would also get the film done on time and on budget. Uh, Fuller had actually known Romain Gary back in the day, the, the author of the original story. And apparently Gary, who was married to actress Jean Seberg, who was a very well-known actress who starred in the uh, French New Wave classic Breathless and who had a very tragic life of her own, they apparently had undergone a situation like in this story where they had a dog that turned out to be an attack dog. Um, so that was thought that uh, that may have played a part in Gary's writing, but also the fact that Fuller, who had served in the military during World War II, he had also had experiences uh, regarding German dogs that were trained to track down and hunt Americans just based on like scent, for example. So he had a familiarity with kind of like the mechanics of this narrative, but also was someone who was very passionate about the 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 source material, I'm sorry, the uh, the theme of uh, combating racism. Now, the original story, interestingly, the trainer, the dog trainer in the original story, the black dog trainer, once retrained a dog to attack white people. But that was something which, you know, Fuller didn't, you know, he didn't want that in the film. So goodbye to that. So he was very, you know, successful in terms of like getting this, like I said, getting this film done responsibly. But there was a lot of concern about the content of the film and that it would be perceived as racist despite the fact that it's an extremely anti-racist film. And some reaching out was done to the NAACP to have a representative come on set to the film and to check for racial elements. Well, this was done without Samuel Fuller's buy-in. And having been someone who was so progressive, he was offended at this and had this representative escorted off the set, which, you know, he was of the belief that this kind of what kind of led to the film really becoming uh, uh, the hot potato because... Suddenly, after that, these rumors started going around that the film had racist content, and uh, the NC, I'm sorry, the NAACP ended up placing the movie on what was called its white list, meaning that the film there was a potential for a film to be boycotted by uh, uh, black people, and uh, this was done even though no one at the organization, no one at the NAACP had even seen the final the final product. But it was already, of course, starting to attract all this really uh, negative attention. The project. And so the film ended up making its world premiere in France, where you know, Fuller was highly regarded, and the film got great reviews. But uh, you know, Paramount was really dodgy about the U.S. release, and so what they decided to do was just they uh, put it in five theaters in Detroit for one week. And according to the producer of the film, he said, "quote With no trailer, no poster, and no promotion." It did no business and was shelved as uncommercial. Fuller was so devastated, he went into self-imposed exile in France and never made another studio film, end quote. And I mean, that's true. He did direct uh, two features after that, 
but they were both uh, over in Europe that he did those. There was a plan to broadcast the movie on TV in 1984, a couple of years later, and then NBC ended up pulling the film, saying it was not appropriate to, to screen. And the film really didn't get an actual really real theatrical uh, screening of any kind of repute till 1991, when it showed at the New York New York's Film Forum and got, of course, fantastic reviews. But yeah, I mean, I, I've seen some of Fuller's work before this, and of the works of his I've seen so far, this is the one that really, really kind of finally sunk in and makes me really want to dig into his other work. And I have a bunch of his stuff lying, lying around here. I know Indicator did a box set of some of his films, and so did Eureka. The, the, those are two British labels, and so I've got both of those here. Um, and of course, Sam Fuller, you know, bringing it back to The Last Frankenstein, Sam Fuller worked with uh, our, our very near and dear Robert Dix, who played the uh, Frankenstein grandfather in our film. He appeared as one of the key roles, one of his probably biggest, best uh, roles in Samuel Fuller's 40 Guns. But in watching White Dog, you could really see how how such a wise idea it was to bring Fuller in. The, the thing about Fuller that uh, really kind of resonated with me in watching this film was the toughness, the muscularity of, of this film. It's like an uncut gem, like a a diamond in the rough, to use that phrase. It, it's it's got some roughness in certain spots. You know, sometimes a performance might be a little off, or there might be uh, some questions you have about the logic of a character's uh, motivation. But it's such a dynamic, such an engrossing film. And without overplaying the word, I, I want to say it ever. You know, I'm not trying to say it ever moved me beyond a uh, reckoning. But it is a very uh, it does have an emotional power to it, this movie. And so you're able to take those flaws it has and put them in perspective, in proportion. I mean, Fuller was someone who lived a very dynamic life. You know, he was a reporter. He was in, like I said, the military during World War II. He was someone who had battles with uh, producers and executives on his films, like we've talked about with the Deadly Trackers and the Klansmen being taken out of his hands and movies being recut. He was a filmmaker who wasn't afraid to shy away from uh, controversial topics. Uh, you know, his films touched upon not just racism, but things like uh, child molestation, mental illness. Uh, and this guy didn't didn't shy away from any of that. And in watching White Dog, which I mean, he's like seventy years old when this movie came out, which you know isn't one foot in the grave, but at the same time, it's 1982, 70 years old, so it's definitely kind of up there. And he just comes to this film with all the energy and all the fight that he's had throughout his entire life and, and puts it into this film and, and delivers such a kinetic product. And I don't mean that in the sense that the film is like this wall-to-wall action beats, but I just mean that in the sense that it never just kind of, fall, it never it never puts the, the gear into neutral. It never just like falls asleep at the wheel. It's always engaging its audience, even when it's just uh, dialogue scenes. It's very, very aware of the narrative and the subject matter it has at its hands and is being made in such a way, such a style as to constantly engage the audience with that, with that narrative and that subject matter. It's a movie that I think regardless of how you feel about it, and how you judge it at the end, it's not a movie that you ever turn away from once you start watching it. And at the same time, it's constantly engaging you on this kind of like intellectual level where it's this whole conversation about 
the nature of racism and the ability to uh, expunge it from someone through re-education. And as it's doing all that, you know, maintaining your interest, engaging with your mind, it is it is emotionally connecting with you because I think one of the things that kind of stands out about it when watching it is the dog itself, which great dogs they had in this film. They had five dogs, different dogs to play the main dog. But it's the fact that you can't help but feel like this dog is like this. It's it's even though it's you're seeing it as extremely vicious, extremely dangerous. Except when you know when it's around the like Christy McNichol, it's very loving and supportive. But and throughout the 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 retraining process that Paul Winfield's trying to put it through, it's extremely aggressive and dangerous because it sees him as a black person he needs to attack. But you're also kind of made aware of the fact that this dog is kind of helpless in this situation because this is just how it was trained to be. It's not like it ever chose this path. And it's kind of like the dog itself is at the mercy of its own racism. Because now it's it's become such a part of it that it's on, a, on an instinctive level. And it's it's beyond, you know, it's beyond uh, a situation where you might encounter someone in real life who's racist, who they always have the ability to stop and question what they're doing and ask themselves, is this right or wrong? But this dog, this dog has been programmed now to be like this. And you know, as Winfield's trying to break that program, you can't help but see like the, as he alludes to earlier in the film, the kind of like the turmoil, the mental turmoil it's going to be put into of trying to have to change the way it perceives things and change its training. And it's just, you know, it's basically, it's caught in the middle of this, this maelstrom that you feel for the dog kind of being, the dog is a victim of racism, even though it was trained by racists and engages what is essentially racist behavior. Even though it doesn't perceive it as racist, right? I mean, it's, you know, Paul Winfield even talks in the film about how the, these dogs were trained. They were just basically, a white guy would basically pay some black guy, often uh, someone on the skids, to just beat beat these dogs until they just perceived black people as a threat to them and attack them on sight rather than let their risk the chance of themselves being attacked. It's a film that really is constantly immersing you on these multiple planes, and we're just really bringing you in. And at the same time, Fuller's having, you know, he's someone who is very s- self-aware of him being a director. He was very aware of the fact that he was making a film, that this was in and of itself, good, bad, or otherwise, a piece of art. So as he's making the movie, there's like these constant references uh, to filmmaking, uh, especially with Christy McNichols' character being an actress. There's a great part where, I don't think this is ruining anything, where she goes to shoot a commercial with her friend. Uh, they're they're uh, shooting this commercial where they're playing to uh, like tourists or stewardesses who are on a gondola ride. And the director of the commercial is played by none other than Marshall Thompson, the great Marshall Thompson, who you might know him from the 60s TV show Doctari. You might know him from his films at MGM in the 40s, like The Clock. Or you might know him as the leading man from um, several 50s science fiction movies. But... He's the director of the commercial, and his cameraman's being played by Paul Bartel, who is, of course, one of the graduates of the Corman School of Filmmaking. He did Death Race 2000, Eating Raul, directed those movies. Um, Raul was after Corman, uh, and occasionally popped up in acting stuff. And uh, they're shooting this commercial against the screen on which a backdrop is going to be projected, and Bartel, as the cameraman, is like complaining about the, uh, you know, he's getting nothing but flicker, you know, because... The, the speed of the camera he's shooting the commercial with isn't synced up with the, the rate of the projector. And uh, Thompson, as the director, just tells him, uh, who cares? basically said, like, who cares? You know, 
they'll say it's stylistic that you're doing this. And if that wasn't enough in and of itself, it's kind of just like a little in-joke. Fuller takes that ball and runs with it because then something very very dynamic happens within that scene as that commercial is being shot. I'm not going to give it away. And so because something dynamic, very action-oriented, ends up happening during that scene, Fuller uses that that flicker as a as a, a visual stylistic motif so that you get to a point in the scene where Christy McNichol is laying on the ground and you can see behind her on the on that screen, that projective screen, this this just this very stylish flicker, flicker going on like a strobe light. So even though it starts out as like this little plot point, this little aside that this cameraman's having problems shooting this commercial, and then it becomes kind of like a joke about film, film critics and who think any, you know who would interpret a mistake, something unintended as stylistic. But then of course Fuller doubled down on it by making that part of the style of that scene. And there's there's other moments like that in the film too, where he does things like that. And a great little bit, it's like Dick Miller's in the film, the great Dick Miller character actor, another Corman regular. He plays one of the animal trainers. So it's just great to see people like him and Bartell in this movie. Fuller himself plays uh, Christy McNichol's agent. So that's really cool that uh, that he's in it as well. And he did that sometimes. I mean, he was in the big red one. He had a small part. And just speaking of the bigger casting, I, I, I really do like Burl Ives being this. You know, this is obviously later Later era in his career, but I mean, he just I, mean, I love his voice. Obviously, he was a great singer, Academy Awarding actor. But I just think that was a, a really good, uh, really, really thoughtful casting. McNichol, I, it's interesting because Jodie Foster was originally who Fuller wanted to get in on this, but her schedule wasn't going to work out. Which I'm a huge Jodie Foster fan, so even though I have no problem with McNichol's performance in this movie, once I read that Foster was the uh, original intention to play the lead role, it's kind of like ah. I would have loved to have seen that. And that has, of course, no uh, slight against Christy McNichol, who I also enjoy seeing her work. I think you know, Paul Winfield, who's an actor who I, I do love a lot, um, I think that his performance is the one where sometimes it goes just a notch beyond where it should be to the point where you rem- you're reminded that it is a performance and it sometimes... Uh, loses some of its naturalism again not a, not a bad performance by any stretch but it's something i've seen sometimes that winfield will do uh again though an academy award nominated actor for sounder and who has given uh, more than his fair share of just completely great performances even in smaller roles like the terminator you know he has a, a much smaller supporting role in the film like that or star trek 2 uh really solid just this film was one where sometimes I, Again, it was just there were there were some moments, not not all the time, but there were some moments where you were his performance was just a bit too much. Uh a bit uh he was at he was at a hundred and uh he's giving a hundred and eight percent when maybe he should have just been doing a hundred. Uh but again, not not gonna uh, dock him in totality for his performance just because of that. Real kudos to the behind the behind the scenes talent on this too. Uh, film was shot by Bruce Surtees, son of famed cameraman Robert Surtees. Uh, but Bruce himself was a really well-known cinematographer. Uh, shot Dirty Harry, Escape from Alcatraz, The Shootist. Music, the, th- the music is by uh, the legendary Ennio Morricone, the Italian composer who was actually suggested to Fuller by Fuller's wife, Krista Lang, who was took on small roles in some of Fuller's films. She plays the uh, veterinarian nurse in this film near the beginning. But his theme which has uh, constantly gone back to throughout the film, plays over the opening credits, is excellent. It's, it's great. 
And then the, the, the script was, uh, you know, I had different people working on it over the years as it was developing at Paramount, like Nicholas Kazan was working on it at one point. But the final script ended up with uh, Fuller himself writing it with Curtis Hansen. I believe Hansen had actually been involved earlier on the script back in the earlier days of production. He kind of came back to it. He was brought back to it. Uh, Hansen, yet again, another graduate of the Corman School of Filmmaking who went on to an extremely successful career of his own as a director with films like L.A. Confidential and 8 Mile. And so the script is uh, both his and Fuller's. Production value on this, like, if you watch the trailer, so the f- if you go to YouTube, there's a fan-made trailer, but there, I haven't watched that. But there's also, a, like, a upscale trailer from a Betamax release, which is actually, like, an original trailer. And it's interesting because you watch that trailer and it completely ignores the racism aspect of the film that this dog was attack- trained to attack black people. If you watch the trailer, you think it's, like, a Cujo movie where, like, it's just a crazy dog. But you can kind of see, like... There's this, there's this huge car crash scene in this movie, which is just, a, it's a very well well done. And it just kind of speaks to the, like, the fact that even though they were shooting the, on this on, uh, you know, they were trying to keep this on a more responsible budget, Paramount, that Fuller was still able to deliver strong production value within this type budget. It's just real mastery, basically, of having to work on a lower budget. He wasn't, you know, unlike a director who, you know, some directors don't know how to respond to that, don't know how to respond to restricted budgets. And don't know how to maximize that, but Fuller, it's you know completely does. He he really knows how to make the film look uh, as big as possible with the restraint with, with any financial restraints at his disposal. So I mean, I definitely recommend this film. Absolutely recommend it. It's definitely one that I'm still processing, and will probably probably continue to do so for a while. I was reading some articles about it online. Criterion put this out on DVD. I I have the uh, imported Blu-ray that Eureka in the UK put out. I'm sure Criterion will put it out on Blu-ray too at some point. But if you go to Criterion's website, they have a really good in, uh, in-depth piece uh, writing on on the film. And I definitely recommend checking that out. But yeah, I, I really recommend watching this movie because it's something, like I said, it's just, a, it's not a movie that, again, whether you like it or not, it's not a movie you're going to forget. Obviously, I'm not going to give away the ending to the film, but it's an ending you won't forget. It's an ending that stays with you. It's a very complete piece this film from beginning to end and as you think about it as an analogy to racism in humans i think that all the more kind of makes you really want to think more about the ending and what exactly is it implying about this issue so check it out white dog directed by samuel fuller 1982 uh, from paramount and that'll do it for this episode of Carpet City Cinema. Thank you again for listening. Thank you for all the support in promoting The Last Frankenstein. Please, anything you can do to continue with that is greatly appreciated and continue to promote Carpet City Cinema. But thank you again for listening and we will talk to you next week.